14 to 14. Seahawks are tied. <laughs> Just looked on my computer. I love technology. Um, yeah, so now that they took up all our time, um, Lord bless you guys. Have a great week. You know me better than that. Um, just a couple other announcements. Um, you, you can read through the bulletin on your own. There, there is no uh, home group at Kelly and Brandy's house tonight, the Avery's uh, home group. 242 group's been canceled. Uh, there are a couple other home groups that you can choose from. They're on this wall out here in the hallway. Uh, grab a flyer and, and uh, maybe go to a, a different home group uh, tonight. Um, and then uh, I also wanted to make you aware of the Mexico trip, our mission trip uh, over spring break, uh, be March 24th through the 31st, and uh, we'll have a, you know, you can drive or you can fly. Um, probably if you drive, the cost is going to be around $200, something like that. And if you uh, fly, then you'll have to get a ticket on your own. But there's a sign-up sheet out in the foyer on the table. Um, sign up if you want to go. We'll have meetings uh, probably in the next few weeks that will just explain what we'll be doing and things like that. Uh, if we don't get, you know, probably at least 15 people to go, uh, we probably won't do the trip just because we, we need at least that many uh, to, to make, you know, uh, an impact there. So um, it's kind of it's coming up quick and, and it hasn't been we haven't been talking a lot about it with the holidays and everything. Um, but it's a great time, and, and if, if you've had it on your heart, I encourage you uh, to, um, you know, take the time to go and to minister to people down there. You'll be blessed uh, for it. So this morning uh, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Continuing to make our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're really entering the last section of this book. Chapters 10 through 13 really um, are a new section uh, in which Paul begins to defend his ministry. His apostleship, as we've talked about, has been called into question. His authority is being challenged. And in these chapters... Paul answers the accusations of his enemies at Corinth. And as we read his reply, we're really going to discover uh, the lies and the false accusations that they were telling and spreading about Paul. They were saying he was not a true apostle since he lacked credentials from the Jerusalem church. They said his motives were insincere. They said that his physical presence was so weak that he deserved no respect. They said that his letters were bold, but he would never back them up in person. They said his promises could not be depended upon. And so these were hurtful things that they were saying about Paul. And yet Paul just continued to minister to them, to bless them, to love them. And we need to keep in mind as we read these chapters that Paul is not defending himself personally. He's defending his office as an apostle, and therefore he's defending the message in which he was bringing to them. 
He's, he's defending his ministry more than he's defending himself. And we see that with Jesus as well. You notice that Jesus never gets angry about things said about him or things done to him. Jesus got angry when others were mistreated or when others were, you know, falsely accused. That's when Jesus gets angry, not when it has to do with him. And, and that ought to be our heart as well. We ought to be very careful that we aren't running around trying to defend ourselves, trying to make others like us, trying to make others think that we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. That's not what Paul is doing here at all. He has a greater purpose in mind, and that is the purpose that the message that he is bringing to them would not be changed. Because not only were these false teachers maligning Paul and falsely accusing him and assassinating his character, but they were also perverting the message. And that's what Paul is defending. And so in our text this morning, which will be chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, I want us to take note of two main points this morning. First of all, we're going to see Paul defending his ministry. And then we're going to see Paul describing our war. And so let's take a look at Paul defending his ministry in verses 1 and 2. Read those with me. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And so Paul defends his ministry. His request in verses 1 and 2 really introduced a couple key ideas that he addresses here. First thing that he addresses is this mistaken opinion, this idea that he wavers between boldness in his letters and timidity in person. They, they would say, you know, Paul, you, you talk really big in your letters and, and you sound so eloquent and you write so well, but then when you come here, you're just kind of weak looking and you're nothing to, you know, be even remotely concerned with. You, you don't intimidate, you don't impress with your physical appearance. And so, you know, we think you're kind of uh, hypocritical, really. You, you talk big in your letters, but your, your speech in person and your appearance in person doesn't match up. And so Paul is really um, wanting to just dispel that notion. As he would say in verse 7, do you look at the outward appearance? Is that what you judge by? Is that what Jesus judges by? Is the outward? Or should you be looking at the heart? And so that's the first thing that, that Paul defends here. And then secondly, he presents to them his conviction that his style of ministry is modeled after Christ. That's really the key. And that really ought to be our defense of anything that we're doing. If we can say, you know what, I'm modeling myself after Christ. I'm doing what Jesus would have me to do. That is the best defense. 
that should really be our only defense. And that's what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, look, I'm pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm wanting to model my ministry after Jesus. And that's really the ministry model that we should be using. Because people might say all kinds of things against us. People might attack us. People might criticize us. But if we know that we're doing things the way Jesus would do things, then we're okay. And the way they were attacking Paul is they were saying, Paul, you're, you're just too meek. In a sense, you're too nice. You're too unopposing. You're not intimidating enough. We want somebody that's tall and handsome and attractive to people. And Paul says, look, I came to you the way Jesus came when he was on this earth. With humility, with meekness, with kindness, with gentleness. And that was really Paul's point in Philippians chapter 2 when he's talking about the fact that as believers we should be humble and that we should be united as a church. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought because that's the mind of Christ. And he says this in Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And that's just a real fancy way of saying that Jesus is God. He didn't have to rob from God to be God. He is God. And He made Himself of no reputation. And that phrase in the Greek means He emptied Himself of all His divine privileges. And He took the form of a bond slave. The lowest of all the servants and slaves. And He came in the likeness of men. And so, though Jesus was God, He took on human flesh. And He dwelt among us in meekness and in gentleness. Jesus was humble. Jesus was meek. Jesus was gentle. And Jesus was Paul's example and Paul's model for ministry. And you guys, He ought to be our example and our model, not only for ministry, but for life. For how we live for the pattern of our life. There's a lot of ways and a lot of people we can pattern our life after. But it ought to be Jesus who is the model and the pattern for our life. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, that if we say we abide in Him, then we ought also to walk just as he walked. In other words, as Christians, that word Christian means a follower of Christ. As Christians, we need to be following in the footsteps of Jesus. You know that, that wristband, that t-shirt, that bumper sticker, what would Jesus do? That's a cliche and it's a trendy statement, you know, at least it was a few years ago. But it's more than that. It really is how we ought to pattern our life. What would Jesus do? Every decision, every action should be filtered through that question. What would Jesus do? And Paul had asked himself that. 
How would Jesus handle this situation? And he was modeling Christ's ministry. Because we know that Jesus was the meekest man to ever walk the earth. Now, Moses said that he was the meekest man, but that was before Jesus walked the earth. So I think Moses would, you know, probably agree that Jesus had him beat on that. Because what is meekness? Meekness is power under control. I think Jesus displayed that so many times. As He was being ridiculed and criticized and harassed by men. Questioned. You know, I know that that there's times where maybe somebody asks a, a patronizing question or, you know, a, they, they challenge me or they criticize me or they come against my authority. And, and, you know, automatically you want to defend yourself. Automatically that pride kind of wells up in your heart. And yet Jesus, who had every reason to defend himself, said, be prideful. And to say, look, I'm the God of the universe. Who are you to challenge me? And just to, you know, wipe them out right there. You know, or give them some horrible disease or something. You know? And he didn't do that. That's meekness. How about when they're beating him and torturing him and crucifying him, and then they say, hey, if you really are God, then come down from that cross and do something about it. And Jesus could have. He said, I could have called legions of angels. Jesus could have opened up the earth and swallowed them all. But He didn't. That's meekness. And Paul, to the best of his ability, was trying to demonstrate that same meekness amongst the Corinthians. And you know what? You guys, that's the kind of heart that we ought to have in our workplaces, with our families, wherever we go. The mind of Christ. That if we say we abide in Him and we follow Him and we name the name of Christ, then we ought to walk as He walked. And now that's an impossible challenge. Because Jesus walked in perfection. But our heart, our goal, our ambition ought to be to walk the way Jesus walked. And when we don't, we confess it and we ask Him to forgive us and we try the next time to to do what Jesus would do. And you're going to fail. You're you're going to misrepresent the Lord. You guys, the moment we wake up in the morning, we misrepresent God by the very nature of who we are. But we can do our best to abide in Him, to stay close to Him, to represent Him, and to do things the way He would do things. And maybe you're faced with some challenges right now with the way people view you. And maybe people are talking about you and stabbing you in the back. Well, you're in good company because Jesus went through that. He knows that. He knows what it's like to be led as a sheep before its shears and yet not to open his mouth in defense of himself. It's amazing to me. So I'm reading through the Gospels even now. And, and, I, and I just I journal um, as I'm reading. And, and one 
thing that just constantly sticks out to me with Jesus is that He never promotes Himself. He never defends Himself. It's almost as if He could care less what people think about Him. And there's a real freeing thing about that. Now, having that mindset doesn't mean we don't care about people. But it means that we don't care if they like us, if they respect us, if they honor us. We don't care about that. Now, hopefully our life would demand that. But if people criticize you, you're in good company. And that's the other thing that has always stuck out to me. Because I'm the kind of person that I want everybody to like me. But when I read about Jesus, I see He had critics. And I think if Jesus had critics, then I'm going to have critics. If Paul had critics, then I'll have critics. It's impossible not to. It's impossible to have everybody like you and still be pleasing to God. You could be, you know, this person that is two-faced and hypocritical and just says what people want you to say and, and, you know, have everybody be your friend. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was very straightforward. Paul was very straightforward. And there's a price for that. And so Paul defends his ministry and really the way that he defends his ministry is by saying, look, I modeled my life after Jesus. He would later say, follow me as I follow Christ. That's not an arrogant statement. That's saying, look, I'm following Jesus, so if you want to follow Him, then get behind me and we'll follow Him together. That's what we ought to be doing as parents. It's what we ought to be doing with those that we're trying to reach out to. It's just saying, look, I I want you to see Jesus. And that's why in in this church, I I don't ever want people to follow me. I I don't want people to put me on a pedestal. I, I want you guys to see Jesus. I want to lead you to Him. It's kind of the reason why, you know, I don't wear suits and ties and try to, you know, have this persona that, you know, I'm somehow separate. That That is just crazy to me. I, I'm a man of flesh. I'm a sinner. I have weaknesses and failings. And I would never want you to follow me. I want you to follow Jesus. I want your heart your mind to be focused on Him and Him alone. Well, let's look at verses 3 through 6 as we see Paul describing our war. Paul describes our war here in these verses. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And so Paul describes our war. He says, 
that we're waging a war. He says we have weapons of warfare to destroy our enemies. He says we can tear down raised obstacles. He says we take captives. We stand on military alert, ready to punish the rebels, our enemies. And so he really describes in a very Roman military fashion this war that we're in. And he says that we're not waging war according to the flesh. Because in the end of verse 2 he says, as if we walked according to the flesh, and then for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And so what he's saying is, yes, we are still in the flesh. You know, I hate to break it to you, but, you know, we're in this fleshly body. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. We're not in heaven yet. We're still walking in the flesh. As Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. So we still have this battle that's going on. We still have this flesh to contend with. But we don't wage the war that we're engaged in according to the flesh. Although we're in the flesh, we don't wage the war according to the flesh. We have to appeal to the weapons that we have in Christ that are mighty in God, he says. The NIV says we don't wage this war as the world does, which means that we don't rely on flimsy, fleshly human resources that are void of any divine power. The weapons of the world, they're, they're many and they're broad, but I think a few that we can think of are education, personal influence, impressive credentials, money, smooth talking. These are the weapons of the world. This is how people in the world wage the war that they're going through on a daily basis. They get through their life with these kinds of things. And consequently, it's exactly what the church in Corinth was expecting from Paul. This was a carnally minded church, a very gifted church, but a very worldly, fleshly minded church. And they were saying, Paul, you know, we don't really like your weapons. We don't really like the way you do things. We want to see more education. We want to see more personal influence. We want to see more impressive credentials. We want to see more money and attractiveness and smooth talking. That's what they wanted from Paul. And Paul says, that is not how I wage the war that I'm in. In fact, as we know, Paul had all those things at one time in his life. There, there was a time where where Paul was very prominent and very popular and very prosperous. Paul was educated in the best institutions. You might say he was a, a Harvard graduate today. Paul had that pedigree. Paul had those impressive credentials, and yet he didn't use them at all. In fact, he said... I count them as rubbish 
in Philippians chapter 3. Now that word rubbish, if we were to translate that into the Greek language and use that as they used it, it is a very strong word that we might even consider to be a cuss word. It's dung, it's horse manure. Paul says, that's what I look at my old life like. Like a pile of horse manure. I don't use it for advantage. I don't use it to impress people. The weapons of my warfare are different now. He did not wage war as the world does or with carnal, fleshly weapons. As we talk about this war and this battle that we're engaged in, there's three things that I want you guys to think about. First of all, we need to remember that we're at war. In verse 3, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And so, it's kind of assumed that we're in a war. And you need to understand that. You need to remember that. That you're in a war. Now, if you're in a war, it's very important that you know who your enemy is. We don't send soldiers to Iraq and say, you know, um, go ahead and go over there. And, and you know, it's, it's not the greatest conditions and uh, it's kind of dangerous, but you'll, you'll figure it out when you get there. No, they go there knowing exactly who their enemy is. And they go there understanding that they're going into war. And we need to know who our enemy is. We need to remember that we're at war. There's not a moment, a second that goes by that the soldiers in Iraq and soldiers in whatever war do not have as part of their understanding, part of their mindset, that they're at war. They don't forget that. When they wake up in the morning, the first thing on their mind is, who's going to shoot at me today? What kind of bombs am I going to run across? Am I going to get ambushed? You have to think that way. You have to constantly be on alert. And that, you guys, is important for us as soldiers. Is that we would remember we're at war. That we wouldn't get comfortable. It's very easy for us as Americans to get comfortable. And once in a while we get a tragedy. And then we remember we're at war. 9-11. Everybody remembered they're at war and everybody went to church and everybody was praying. You know, back in the the early 90s with the Gulf War, churches were packed. You know, and then we have, you know, isolated situations in different regions. Hurricane Katrina or some major catastrophe. And and in that area, people are seeking God and, and people are remembering they're at war. But then we fall back into this comfort. And that's why the persecuted church around the world in places like Saudi Arabia and North Korea and other places, they are churches that are on fire. We see in the book of Acts, the church was turning the world upside down for Jesus because they were being persecuted. They couldn't get comfortable. They had to remember they were at war. You guys... Even in our comfortable American lifestyle. And don't get me wrong, I like it. I don't want to live in a third world country. I don't want to be shot at and, you know, impoverished and 
all those kinds of things. I'm not saying that, oh, that would be so much better. I'm just saying that in our comfort, in our plush lifestyle, we need to really keep in mind that we're at war and that we have an enemy. And our enemy is really twofold. And of course, we know about our enemy, the devil. In fact, the Bible says that he desires to destroy us. That he has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his M.O. If somebody wants to steal from you, kill you, and destroy you, you could call that person an enemy. I think that's pretty easy to figure out. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you run across a lion in the jungle or wherever you run across lions at a zoo or whatever, you know that's not your friend. If you were, you know, I remember one time uh, hunting and, you know, I was just kind of in, in my own world, hadn't seen deer or anything for days, you know, just walking out in the desert and all of a sudden this badger is like, right under my feet and I just stopped and I realized if this badger wanted to kill me right now he could I'm at his mercy I raised my gun and then the badger just kind of turned and walked off and when I had that encounter with the badger I knew that he wasn't my friend they're mean they're nasty they're strong they're incredible. I wasn't, you know, interested in petting the badger, you know, or getting to know him or taking him home. You know, hey, Caitlin, look at this. I brought you a pet, you know. It, there was none of that going through my mind. The only good thing going through my mind was hopefully I can raise my gun before he jumps on me. And we need to know that we have an enemy, the devil. But we also have an enemy within. It's our flesh. You might call it a civil war within. And Galatians 5 says that our flesh and the spirit are warring against each other. That's why you have guilt and conviction. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Because it's a war going on. And we need to understand that we're in that war. With our own flesh. It's a civil war. It's an amazing thing if you think about it. And you have to put the flesh to death on a daily basis. And you guys, I will say, and some probably disagree with me, that our flesh tends to get us in more trouble than the devil ever does. I remember... um, some years back, uh, working with my father-in-law and Ben, we had a fruit stand, and I was the only only one there. And and this guy comes in, and uh, he's all freaked out. Comes driving up, you know, just flying through the parking lot, and slams on the brakes, jumps out of the car, and runs in. And you know, can I talk to you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, the the devil's chasing me. And I'm like looking around, I'm like, I I only see your car, you know, where's he at? You know, I'd like to meet him too. I'm just thinking the devil's chasing you. 
the devil can only be at one place at one time, and I think he's got bigger fish to fry. I don't know. I mean, maybe a dignitary, a president, you know. I don't know, but I don't think he's chasing you. And so I don't really like to get off on, like, this hyped-up, sensationalistic idea about the devil and, you know, singing songs like the devil's under my feet and we're going to smash the devil and we hate you, devil, and we cast you out of this and, you know, books that are written and all that stuff. I, that's, that's over here and, and you know what? Some people like that stuff and that's not me. But then over here, and, and maybe we're guilty of this a little bit, you, you get people that just, it's almost as if we don't believe in the devil anymore. It's like he doesn't exist. We don't talk about him, and he's like the, the white elephant, the pink elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. He is there, he's very real, but we can make too big of a deal out of him, I think, and we can make no deal out of him, and, and both those things are wrong. And the longer you walk with the Lord, I think the more you realize that balance is key. And certainly in this, this war that we're waging with the devil, balance is key. I don't think we need to walk around paranoid, you know, talking to the devil all the time, you know, telling him how horrible he is and we're going to squash him like a bug and, and all this stuff. I, I think he laughs at that personally. I mean, we see in the book of Acts those seven sons of Sceva that thought that they were, you know, so great and, and they go in just kind of flippantly and try to deal with the devil and you know, they paid for it. The the demons were like, hey, uh, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And so it, we kind of need to, to, to live in, in balance in, in that way. So it's very important that we remember we're at war, that we're cognizant of that at all times, that there's a war within and there's a war without. And that both our flesh and the devil are trying to destroy you as a Christian. Well, second thing that I think is important as we describe this war is that we recognize the weapons that we have. He says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Every soldier has a weapon. And they know how to use those weapons. They're trained in those weapons. They're very familiar with the weapons. And Paul doesn't specifically tell us what our weapons are. But we know from other places that the weapons of our warfare are certainly the Word of God and prayer. Those are our weapons. Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul describes, again, the war that we're in, and he says that we need to take up the armor that's been given to us, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, having our waist um, you know, girded with the belt of truth, having our feet shod with the preparation of gospel of peace, taking up the shield of faith. But then he says also, taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he goes on to talk about prayer. And so the Word of God and prayer are certainly our weapons. 
And we need to learn to use them effectively. Soldiers that go to war know how to use their weapons. They know their weapons inside and out. A soldier can dismantle and put his gun back together blindfolded in a matter of seconds. It's not like they find themselves out in the battle and they're like, where's that safety and how do you put bullets in this thing, you know? Or a pilot who's flying F-16, you know, calling back to base, uh, hey, Roger, uh, do you know how to deploy these missiles, you know? Yeah, just press that red button. Oh, wait, not the red one, you know. That's the ejector button. Sorry. That would be ridiculous. They know what they're doing. They know how to use the weapons that they have. They're very familiar with them. We need to recognize our weapons. We need to use the weapons that we have. The Word of God. You find Jesus being led out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, which is a very interesting concept in and of itself. But in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, after Jesus is baptized and the Spirit comes upon Him, He's led out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, it's important, you guys, that you understand as you read that encounter that Jesus has with the devil, don't think of it like Jesus was out there for 40 days and 40 nights without food and then the devil came to him like the last hour. Hey, uh, why don't you turn some of this rocks into bread and how about this and that? You know, that wouldn't be very tempting if I'm about ready to leave and I've already kind of fulfilled my obligation here. Jesus was being tempted the whole time by the devil. And how did he combat that war? With the word. Time and again, Jesus quoted the Word of God to the devil. And He was able to defeat the devil with the Word. Now, it's important, if we're going to do that, that we have a handle on the Bible. And we all have different weaknesses. We all have different temptations and things that that draw us away. Things that are difficult for us to overcome. And I would encourage you to find scriptures in the in the word that would pertain to your specific areas of weakness and memorize those and use those in the battle. When that temptation comes in, use it to combat the enemy. And the thing is, you guys, is that it's a daily preparation. Just like a soldier He doesn't just get thrown out into the battle. He's prepared for months and years ahead of time to know how to use his weapon, to know how to handle survival situations, to know how to jump out of a plane, to know how to survive in in the water for long periods of time, to know whatever he's being called to do, he can do it. He's been trained. And you guys, as soldiers... For Christ, we need to be preparing ourselves before we get into the battle. It's just like the story of Jesus taking the three disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John up on top of the mountain. Well, the other nine disciples were down at the bottom. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but my 
gut feeling is that they were ticked off about that. Peter, James, and John, why do they get to do everything? They get to go with Jesus on special trips. He takes them and tells them stuff he doesn't tell us. We're starting to get tired of that. Who, what are they, better than us? And they were kind of going back and forth. And I don't think that's a stretch to think that because time and time again they were arguing about who was the greatest. So you can imagine there would have been that tension. Well, in the midst of that, here comes a father with his son who's riddled with demons, whose life has been destroyed by the devil. And they can't help him. Can't do a thing. And for however long Jesus is up on the mountain, uh, it seems like it was probably an evening and, and a night, and then they came down in the morning. And here they come. And now there's scribes there. They've heard about this situation, and they heard that Jesus' disciples couldn't do anything. And this is newsworthy to them. Because any dirt they can get on Jesus, they were wanting to get it. So here they are. They show up and... The scribes are, hey, you guys are, can't do a thing. You guys are worthless. This Jesus isn't always cracked up to be. And here comes Jesus. Hey, Jesus, your disciples couldn't cast demons out of this young boy. And Jesus comes in and he casts the demons out. And now the disciples are like, look, we've been trying to do this for hours. We couldn't do a thing. What did we do wrong? And Jesus said, well... This kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. And I remember initially reading that as a young Christian and thinking, that isn't fair. Jesus is God. Jesus is powerful. And now He's getting on these guys because they needed to, to pray and to fast. I mean, what were they supposed to do? Run off out, you know, in the bushes and pray for a little while and fast? You know, how could they do that? Well, that wasn't the point. The point was they were supposed to be prepared beforehand. They should have already been praying. They should have already been seeking God. They should have already been connected with the Lord so that they would have the power to do that, and yet they weren't. And see, that's the key, you guys. The key is that we are being prepared on a daily basis. By spending time with the Lord. By seeking Him. By having His Word be implanted in your heart. And you might not use it today. You might not use it tomorrow. It might not be used for a year or five years. But that implanted Word, that Word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that Word of God that you're so familiar with, you're now using it. That specific Word for that time and place. How many soldiers have been trained for years, are experts in their field, and yet never use their weapons? Never do what they're trained to do. I mean, most of my life has been a time of peace in this country. We've been at war like we're two minutes with Saddam Hussein in the early 90s and and then we've been at war now for four or five years which is cr you know crazy for our lifetime and all those soldiers in the 80s and the 90s they were trained for what Kosovo you know little 
drive-by bombing here and there. I mean, there was very little that they did with that training. Except, you know, practice. How many cops are trained to use their weapons, are trained in hand-to-hand combat, are trained in SWAT operations, and yet never even use it. Never raise their weapon one time. Never draw their weapon. Never fire it. But do you think that they, after 20, 30 years of being a police officer and never had to draw their weapon, do you think they go, you know, I really wish I was never trained in how to use that thing. That was a waste. Of course not. If they ever needed it, they would want it. And you guys, we need to be prepared for the war that we're in. Well, the last thing is that we need to realize the effectiveness of these weapons. We need to remember that we're at war. We need to recognize that we have spiritual weapons and that they're mighty in God. But then we need to realize what they're mighty for. You see, when you are a soldier and you have weapons at your disposal that you're trained to use, you know exactly what they can do. You know what that missile can do. You know what that hand grenade can do. You know what that gun will do. Even during World War II, the soldiers that detonated the atomic bombs in Japan, it wasn't like it caught them by surprise. It wasn't like they went home and turned on the news years later and were like, holy smokes, I didn't know it would blow the whole city up. They knew what it would do. And they were very familiar with the effectiveness of the weapons that they had. And so it's super important for us to understand what the weapons we have are capable of. And here Paul says there's five things that our spiritual weapons can accomplish. Basically, these results, these things that he talks about, spell victory for us. He says they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Strongholds in our life. This word speaks of tearing down buildings, tearing down structures. That's important in warfare. You, you look at the footage in Iraq and, and they're constantly tearing buildings down and, and, and tearing things down that would be strongholds, that would get in their way of winning the war. And we need to be tearing down strongholds that the enemy, that our flesh has built up in our life. Walls and structures in our life that have kept us from intimacy with God, that have kept us from obedience to God, that have kept us from living fully for Him. Now, in order to have a stronghold in your life, you have to first give the devil a foothold. We've all seen movies, you know, where the, the ladies running down the hall and it's dark and it's a abandoned house and she's being chased you know and then she runs into a bedroom you know and you know she's going to hide under the bed or whatever and you know there's it's the only thing in the room it's like oh I wonder where she's at but she runs into the bedroom and and then just as she's like going to shut the door he sticks his foot in the door right and now he's got a foothold 
And that's what the devil does. He gets a foothold in our life. We allow him to have that. That little sin here, that, that compromise there. We open up our life to the enemy. And then he creates a stronghold in our life. Many people have given the devil footholds through drugs. And they've opened their life up to the devil. And their mind up to the things of darkness. And he gets that foothold. And then, if you continue to allow him, he'll build a stronghold in your life. And Paul says here, the weapons that we have, the Word of God, prayer, are able to tear those strongholds down. Maybe there's still some strongholds in your life that you need to allow God to tear down. He says it's effective for casting down arguments. That word is reasonings. It's imaginations. It has to do with those things that the devil would want you to believe. Just like he said to Eve, has God said? He created a doubt in her mind. And the Bible says that we can cast down those arguments from the devil. We can cast down idols. It says, casting down everything, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's an idol. An idol, you guys, is anything that is placed above God in our life. Any high thing that would exalt itself against God. It doesn't have to be a statue or a figurine, a little Buddha on our mantle. Certainly those things aren't good if you're worshiping little statues. But I don't think that's a real temptation in this country. That's not something that we typically do. But the devil is just as happy if you're worshiping your career or education, or a relationship, or a hobby, computers, the internet. He's just as happy if that's an idol in your life than he is if you are a devil worshiper or an idol worshiper. He could care less if you're, you know, running around naked worshiping the sun or if you're a person that's addicted to some form of entertainment or a person who's married to their job and who's consumed with making money, that's just as much of an idol. And those people tend to be accepted in society. Oh, that, that's okay. And, and it can even be accepted in the church. We'd be much more apt to judge somebody you know, who's worshiping some little idol or figurine or the devil and who's all dressed in black, you know, and sacrificing kittens. And we'd say, oh man, that person's going straight to hell. But the CEO of a company who's consumed with money, we're more accepting of that person. And I'm not saying every CEO is consumed with money, but you get my drift. person who's consumed with some other form of idol worship. So we need to understand that an idol is anything that exalts itself above God and God wants to tear that down in your life, whatever that is. Whatever you've allowed to be exalted into that place that only God 
should inhabit. Bringing every thought into obedience, he says in verse 5. The end of verse 5. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that the battlefield really is in our mind. That's where the battle is won or lost. Back in this time of Roman battles and even before that with Napoleon and his strategic warfare as he was sweeping across the known world, taking over countries left and right, Napoleon understood the importance of the battlefield. And he would choose his battlefields and he was very strategic in where they would wage war. Because he understood that that was a very important piece of success or failure. You guys, the battlefield of our war is in our mind. Every sin, every destructive choice that we make, every person that you see that's destroyed their life with sin, it started in their mind. Anything you can think of, it starts in your mind. You don't just automatically, instantaneously end up divorced. It starts in your mind. It starts by saying, you know, I deserve better than this. He or she isn't fulfilling my needs. I, I, I should have never married him or her in the first place. And it starts there. And we have to reject that thought when it's there. It, nobody just ends up in an adulterous relationship, it, it starts in the mind. It starts by wanting that. It starts by allowing that to happen. And then before you know it, it is reality, see? And so we have to reject those thoughts. We have to bring every thought into obedience. And the, the picture here is taking those thoughts captive, like a POW taking that prisoner of war, saying, you know what, this isn't my thought. That's an enemy thought. I reject that thought. And I'm going to make a prisoner out of that thought. And then he says, punishing all disobedience. And and the picture there is, you know, one of capturing your enemies and torturing your enemies and, and punishing your enemies. That's the picture there. Of warfare. You know, think about Jack Bauer in 24. You know, and he's constantly torturing his enemies to get information. And he he's, he takes it very seriously. Right? And I don't think that we take it seriously enough. Jesus talking about John the Baptist said that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Do we think about that? That this life that we're living as Christians is a violent life. There's a war going on that we're not even aware of. And we need to violently seize upon righteousness. Upon obedience. Paul said, I subject my body daily, putting it under discipline that I might not be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9.27 
He disciplined himself. He subjected himself to discipline and to subjection so that he would not be disqualified. Guys, we have victory in Christ. John says in 1 John chapter 5 that this is the victory, our faith. We have to trust that at the cross, as Colossians tells us, that all of the darkness and evil and the weapons of Satan were defeated. They were disarmed at the cross. But he still has power if we allow him to have power. The flesh, you guys, has been crucified. Romans chapter 6 says that we've been crucified with Christ. But we have to reckon our flesh to be dead. We have to recognize it. We have to account it to be so on a daily basis. To say, you know what? Today, I'm not going to do this. I won't go there. I won't do that. I won't say this to that person. I don't have to respond in anger. I don't have to scream at that person. I don't have to get prideful here. I don't have to lust there. See, we can understand that we have victory. That the flesh has been defeated. That the devil has been disarmed. But we have to believe that by faith. Because the fact is, you guys, if we allow the flesh and the devil to have power, and we empower them, they will. And they can So we have to daily reckon the old man to be dead. We have to daily defeat the enemy, the devil, with the Word of God, with prayer, spending time with Jesus, staying close to Jesus is the key. Let's stand and pray together.